This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 14th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The president's power of the pen has increased in recent years, along with growing partisanship, and that increase in presidential power to reshape American life also appears to move in concert with the growing unpopularity of the president in general. Gene Healy's new essay in Cato Policy Report is entitled Political Sectarianism and the Presidential Cult. We spoke this week. How has the cult of the presidency driven uh, political polarization? Well, it might have been because I spent uh, a lot of uh, our lockdown period uh, in a basement office in a D.C. row house uh, during a period through the George Floyd protests and the January 6th Capitol riot when it seemed like the city was going to go up in flames. But it seemed to me that the signs that political hatred and mass polarization was on the rise were kind of hard to miss. Uh, and this had become a also a, bi- a big theme of uh, Biden's inaugural address and his comments leading up to the inaugural. He talked about uh, this uncivil war that pits red against blue. His inaugural address uh, promised unity, used the word unity something like 11 or 12 times. Uh, unity is the path forward. But even in less turbulent times, this has been a pretty familiar tune from presidents, right? Uh, George H.W. Bush is going to give us a kinder, gentler nation. His son talked about uh, how he he was a a uniter, not a divider. Uh, Barack Obama uh, was not just going to stop the ocean's rise. He was going to uh, kumbaya us all into one America that was uh, post-partisan beyond red and blue. Uh, so it's something we're, we're used to hearing. But uh, even though Donald Trump was a, an exception, like a pretty stark exception to these promises of, of the presidency acting as a unifier, uh, it wasn't just Trump's uh, horrible Twitter etiquette and rageaholic erratic personality that has made the presidency itself one of the biggest fault lines of polarization in America. What's done that is that the president increasingly has the power to reshape vast areas of American life and law. Uh, The president can decide whether we have a trade war with China or a shooting war with Iran, uh, whether or not you're on the hook for your student loans and whether or not you have to show your COVID papers in order to keep your job. And the general thesis of the article is that when so much turns on who holds the White House, which party controls the presidency, uh, you're more or less guaranteed that we're going to be at each other's throats about it. Uh, The modern presidency, by its very nature and because of the powers it's accumulated, is a divider not a uniter. It's become much too powerful to be anything else. So what is political sectarianism? Well, political scientists use uh, different terms for these intensifying political differences and toxic polarization that we've been seeing. Uh, Some of these terms are uh, pretty clinical, uh, uh, like effective polarization or negative partisanship. Uh, some of them get a little closer to it, like uh, you hear the word tribalism a lot in this context. But political sectarianism is a 
term that was coined uh, by a group of top uh, polarization scholars in an article published last fall in Science. Um, and what they suggest is that even tribalism, the, the term tribalism doesn't really capture what's going on. It suggests it's a kinship metaphor. You know, it suggests a more warm fellow feeling with the people that we consider ourselves related to. They suggest that religion is actually a better source of metaphors for what's going on. Uh, it's less fellow feeling with our co-partisans that's motivating uh, a lot of Americans now. It's more like we're drunk on hatred of the alien other, uh, fire and brimstone. And they talk about uh, our zealous faith in the moral correctness of our particular political sect. So political sectarianism, the, the term that they coin, uh, is, uh, you know, think of uh, Sunnis and Shia or Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, this uh, a sense of uh, hostility towards an alien other and strong faith in our moral righteousness in politics. That's, that's what it's supposed to get at. Back in the 1992 Republican convention, uh, Pat Buchanan gave this fiery speech where he said that th there's a religious war going on in America. And I remember uh, a lot of people thinking that was way, including myself, uh, thinking that was way over the top uh, and people being kind of shocked by this suggestion. But lately it seems like maybe uh, Buchanan was just a couple of decades ahead of the trend. So political fights seem to be getting more pointed uh, and at the same time, in some sense, more uh, pointless. The United States had a civil war uh, in which many thousands of Americans died. So how are we to evaluate polarization today versus decades or more than 100 years ago? Well, I think it's the right instinct to uh, check the, you know, the, this sense that America is coming apart. I mean, you know, people typically in every age, when they, when they reach a certain age, tend to think everything's going to hell and things uh, can't be worse. But a little historical perspective can show us where we don't have it quite that bad. Uh, we don't have, uh, you know, senators beating each other half to death with canes, like uh, as in the run-up to the Civil War. Uh, politics is not yet as violent even as it was uh, as it was in, as recently as the 1970s. So I, I think it's, it's, it's worthwhile to put that into perspective. However, the, this, this sense that political hostility has spiked is not just something that we uh, – you know, a misimpression that we picked up from being extremely online by necessity uh, during uh, the 2020 and 2021 lockdowns. It's actually a real measurable phenomenon studied by political scientists, and uh, it's grown measurably worse. So one thing that, that, that they look at is something called the feelings thermometer. Uh, and it's just, it's really a series, a long-running series of uh, Poll questions where you uh, you ask Republicans, self-identified Republicans and Democrats to rate uh, on a scale of one to 100, how warm or cold do they 
feel to their own party and towards the opposite party. And in the in the late 1970s, uh, if you asked Republicans how they feel about Democrats or Demo- or vice versa, uh, you know, pretty lukewarm, uh, 48 degrees. Uh, it's now uh, 20 degrees and, and falling. And that hatred, the hatred of the other party or dislike towards the other party has uh, eclipsed, you know, positive feelings about one's own political sect uh, in terms of motivating people to uh, engage in politics. Hatred is a more powerful motivator. Uh, you have some other uh, questions, uh, some polling data that came out recently in a study published in January called Lethal Mass Partisanship that I think are pretty stark. Uh, one of the things they asked uh, r- registered voters, Republicans and Democrats, it was, would you say that the opposing party is a serious threat to the United States and its people, or wouldn't you go that far? And more than two-thirds of Republicans and nearly two-thirds of Democrats would go that far. They, they said, in fact, about half of each went so far as to say that the other team was, quote, downright evil. Uh, they also asked, uh, do you ever think we'd be better off as a country if large numbers of the opposing party in the public today just died? And in this case, uh, Republicans were slightly nicer. The only 15 percent uh, admitted to having such feelings. 20 percent of Democrats owned up to occasionally wishing mass death on fellow Americans who don't vote like they do. It seems to me, uh, looking at uh uh, evidence like this that we have it pretty bad. So I was looking at some uh, polling data recently, uh, thanks to uh, Emily Eakins at the Cato Institute, and she pointed out that, or she showed uh, with the data she cited, that uh, Republicans have a much lower amount of trust in media. I know a lot of people are, as you note, very much online. So what contributes uh what is driving all of this? It seems like it's a trend that accelerated during the pandemic, but uh, what do you think? Well, it, it did accelerate, particularly over the last 20 years, um, but there's a lot of debate over what's driving it. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things that seems to be overdetermined, uh, a complex social phenomenon where you can't point to any one cause. And I should say, I'm not it's not my claim that the growth in presidential power is is a central driver or the main driver of this. I, there, there are too many factors at work. But what does seem clear is that uh, it wasn't part of somebody's central plan. Uh, a lot of it happened by accident. Uh, some of it is a result of uh, a, a good thing, being able to satisfy consumer choice. Uh, so, for example, uh, we've moved away from each other physically. There's a phenomenon that's been called the big sort. Uh, this wasn't, a, especially at first, a matter of Republicans wanting to move away from Democrats or vice versa. It was more a, an artifact of different housing preferences. Uh, you know, if you poll them, uh, people who happen to identify as Republican tend to like big yards with big grills and lots of parking, and they don't mind driving to stuff. Uh, Democrats 
tend to prefer uh, urban amenities, walking to things, uh, bike lanes, uh, that sort of thing. And as a result of this, for decades now, we've been moving away from each other and sort of self-segregating into deeper red and blue neighborhoods. Uh, there was uh, the, the term called landslide counties. Uh, these are counties uh, in America where one presidential candidate wins the, the vote, presidential vote by 20 points or more. Uh, back in 1976, only around uh, 25% of American voters lived in these landslide counties. Uh, now it's uh, about 60% of American voters. And they're increasingly telling pollsters that they don't have any close friends who voted for the other guy. At the same time, uh, there's been some mental self-segregation on digital and broadcast. Uh, increasingly, we get to, the you know, we're not locked into uh, as we were 40 years ago into, uh, 50 years ago into, uh, big three net, the big three networks and, uh, local newspapers and, th and that sort of thing. Uh, we're able to take charge of our own news streams and, uh, our own personal information diet and, you know, pile up our plate with the stuff we like. And for a lot of people, uh, what we like to hear is that it's the, bastards on the other side who uh, are ruining this country. Uh, and while there's some debate about the role of social media in enhancing polarization, uh, it seems clear that this ability to design our own news streams is, uh, is not helping uh, uh, tamp down uh, the fever, feverish uh, heat in our politics. Uh, something you note that I, I want to make sure our, our listeners hear, which is even when people don't have a particularly positive view of the current occupant of the White House or the presidency in general, they still want to vest enormous power in the presidency. Uh, and this is something you note in your uh, article that we have seen a massive increase uh, dovetailing somewhat with the uh, <laughs> dovetailing pointedly with 9-11, a massive increase in the authorities of the president. That's right. I mean, presidential elections have always had con consequences. The winners of those elections never, you know, failed to remind us. Um, and so there, for a long time, there, there have been, uh, in the first week of a new presidency, when, when the former president, uh, when the party that was out of power seizes the White House, you know, there's for a long time, there have been a series of executive orders in the first uh, week or two that reverse executive orders by uh, the president from the the, the other party. Uh, so, for example, in the uh, first week or so of the Clinton administration, 1993, uh, January 1993, uh, Clinton reversed two executive orders uh, from the Reagan-Bush era. One of them was uh, the so-called Mexico City policy. This is uh, in, in, to receive foreign aid. Foreign NGOs have to certify that they don't promote abortion as a method of family planning. And another one of them was uh, if you were a federal contractor, you had to post notice to your employees that they couldn't be legally forced to join a union. Clinton comes in. Uh, turns off the Mexico City policy, uh, removes this requirement for 
the uh, posted notice about unionization. Uh, they have significant changes, but uh, not on the scale that we've seen recently. You know, every president after that, you know, when when George W. Bush took over from Clinton, he'd flip these policies on and off. Obama flips them back back off. But what we've seen more recently is that the stakes are are much higher. Uh, you know, they, they extend to who gets to come to the United States and who gets to eventually become an American. Uh, you know, Barack Obama uh, in 2012, I believe, you know, begins the DACA and DAPA programs, uh, offering legal status and access to uh, federal benefits for a huge swath of uh, illegal or undocumented immigrants in the United States. Donald Trump comes in, uh, tries to reverse that those policies and institutes a travel ban, uh, which he originally calls a Muslim ban, on seven countries. So you're talking about much more significant changes than the sorts you used to see at the end of the 20th century. Uh, you know, Obama's uh, education department, to a, through a dear colleague letter, uh, redefined sexual misconduct at uh, every university in the country and uh, lowers due process protections for the students accused of sexual misconduct. Uh, Trump comes in uh, and works on reversing that policy. You're seeing much more sweeping consequences for the a shift in which party holds the White House. And uh, this tends to, you know, if you think about it, uh, if you if you wanted to design a uh, institutions from the ground up for a country as divided as the one we have, one that uh, you know where people have moved away from each other uh, and towards towards neighbors that that agree with them politically, and where there's deep division on fundamental questions uh, across the country as a whole, you'd probably want to tread lightly. You would want as many. Decisions made as close to the ground where people agree uh, as you can, and uh, to the extent where there has to be a national policy in something like trade relations or war, uh, you w- you would want to make sure that uh, you know one man isn't making the call. You want deliberation and consensus among multiple branches of government. So you, you know you might want something more like the original Constitution. Uh, in the last 20 years, as you point out, you know, especially since 9-11, we've been running a really different experiment where we've centralized more and more authority in the executive branch and fundamental questions of governance that used to be left to Congress, the states of the people, are settled in winner-take-all fashion by which party holds the presidency. And uh, when we do this, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that it's becoming harder and harder to keep the peace among warring political sects. Uh, we really run a risk of convincing large numbers of Americans on both sides of the aisle that every election could be an, a flight 90, a so-called flight 93 election, you know, where it's charge the cockpit, do or die. I think that's a very dangerous place to be in. So Joe Biden is elected president in 2020. And for people who are, I don't know, of the pundit class, 
the argument was, well, look, he's trying to lower the temperature. He's trying to just not be Donald Trump. He wins the election. And uh, well, how is it going in terms of him trying to be a more uniting type of presence in the White House? Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about normalcy and, uh, you know, ending this grim era, era of demonization in politics. And uh, I don't really think we've seen that. Um, yes, Joe Biden has a much more boring and adult Twitter feed. Uh, and that's good. Uh, there's been something of a change of tone, which wouldn't be too hard, uh, given the tone of the last administration. Uh, but it doesn't change the fundamentals. Uh, the fact that the president has such sweeping powers, it means that the president always is always going to be a focal point of our political differences. Uh, there was, uh, one particular issue last summer of the Wall Street Journal. It was like June 9th, uh, where this really came out starkly because there are three different stories uh, in the A section about vast decisions that Joe Biden was making that uh, determined which companies were going to live and which which would die. He uh, overturns uh, an executive order by Trump that was aimed at banning TikTok. So TikTok can stay on your kid's phone at the same time, another article of the same day reported that the Keystone Pipeline, he decided, would have to die for want of a permit that was necessary for the pipeline. Um, and uh, for good measure, uh, the administration was poised to make massive changes in the, the definition of the navi navigable waters of the United States, wetlands, uh, which would have vast consequences for uh, what people can do on their own property, uh, if any of it is uh, damp. It doesn't change the, to, to change the tone, uh, while that may be laudable, uh, it doesn't change the vast powers and the vast consequences exercised by the presidency. So much now turns on, uh, you know, what colored jersey the person occupying the White House wears, uh, that it will, for the foreseeable future, as long as that prevails, uh, be a, a lightning rod for polarization. A lot of the fights that we've seen seem to be ones that have driven, been driven by social media. That is, it's a very bumper sticker length claim or slogan about uh, Dr. Seuss or Mr. Potato Head, and the fights don't seem to have anything to do with uh, governance of governmental institutions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of it seems like a culture war clickbait, uh, that, uh, there was more, uh, I forget exactly what was going on in Congress at the time of the Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Zeus things, but, uh, uh, massive infrastructure bill, maybe uh, there was more coverage on Fox news of, uh, the gender identity of Mr. Potato Head, uh, or whether a private party could, uh, uh, you know, take a, a Dr. Dr. Seuss book, uh, out of circulation than there was about issues of governance. So that's definitely, uh, something that is a, a feature of our polarized politics. Uh, but yet in a lot of these issues, the, the things were really polarized around, um, the, they go to questions of identity. Uh, 
you know, race, racism, transgender issues. Um, and, and these things polarize us more than others. Um, but like Donald Trump before him, uh, Joe Biden seems determined to interject himself into almost every one of these issues. Uh, there's a, there's a first week executive order in, embracing the, the concept of uh, systemic racism, uh, something that's hotly debated. Um, there was even a uh, proposed rule for American history and civics grants uh, by the federal government from the Biden uh, Department of Education. I think they've since abandoned it, but it endorsed uh, the New York Times' uh, 1619 project and the work of uh, a self-styled anti-racist radical uh, Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, you know, these are issues that uh, since the president has virtually no constitutional mandate in education that the president didn't need to be involved in. But Donald Trump got involved in them. Joe Biden's getting involved in them. You know, we probably don't need uh, a uniform rule about uh, which kid gets to use which bathroom in every public school in the country or who gets to uh, play girls field hockey. Um, but we are lurching our way towards a uniform policy on both of those things, thanks to Joe Biden's uh, first week executive order on uh, discrimination on the basis of gender identity. Uh, these are fights that we don't need to be having at the, there doesn't need to be one rule for uh, the schools in the Mississippi Delta and the People's Republic of Berkeley. Um, you know, this is something where uh, you know, local communities, the decision should be made closer uh, to where people live. Um, but with the centralization of power in the presidency, uh, what you're starting to see is that uh, instead of all politics being local, all politics is national and all politics is becoming presidential. So to the extent that uh, Joe Biden was not being entirely truthful in his hope to uh, unite people uh, rather than simply mandate a bunch of things about uh, how we ought to think about the world. Uh, what do the political scientists who study polarization say about trying to fix this issue of, I guess, in uh, moving our issues up in terms of uh, who well, should be the appropriate decider? It's funny because uh, you know when I sat down to write this article, the uh, the notion that centralizing a lot of controversial decisions in the presidency would feed polarization seemed almost so obvious to be as to you know approach the point of banality but it's not something that uh, you see much from uh polarization scholars any, any insight to, in, into this um, in fact uh, when i started looking at it it's only there's a couple of law professors john mcginnis and uh michael rapaport uh, who wrote an article uh, earlier this year called Presidential Polarization. Uh, they were the the only people that I'd seen looking at uh, this suite of issues who uh, uh, pointed out the connection to enhanced presidential power and uh, questioned whether this was uh, really a smart play in uh, our, our volatile, fractious politics to uh, centralize more decisions uh, at the executive branch level. Um, 
In fact, a lot of uh, political scientists, uh, you know, when they get around to offering solutions to uh, uh, polarization are positively harmful. Uh, Things like mandatory national service or uh, in the case of uh, uh, one uh, scholar, Terry Moe, presidential activism. You know, the, the, the solution, new powers for the presidency. It seems to me that w- what we need to be doing, uh, you know, is, is moving precisely in the opposite direction, getting power out of the presidency so that we lower the stakes of presidential elections. So the fewer decisions uh, turn on which party manages to seize the White House. Uh, that, I think, is the direction we want to move in. Uh, in order to take some of the heat out of our feverish politics. Gene Healy is Senior Vice President for Policy at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.